When he came back from fighting in World War II, like a lot of guys who had seen action, Joe Moser didn't have a lot to say about what had happened over there. He had been in the thick of it, flying P-38 Lightnings in combat over France in the critical year of 1944. And in August of that year, he got shot down and taken prisoner by the Germans. But there was something unusual about his story, something that, in addition to the usual reticence of that generation, kept him from speaking too freely about his experiences. One day back home after the war, he mentioned that during his captivity with the Nazis, he'd been a prisoner at Buchenwald. Yes, that Buchenwald, the famous concentration camp. Moser wasn't Jewish or a member of any of the groups habitually targeted by the Nazi party, and so his observation was met with skepticism and disapproval. This guy had to be making up stories, and you could see why people would think that. Sounds fantastic on its face. An American fighter pilot sent to the camps, surviving narrowly alongside Holocaust victims in the closing days of the war. People just found it hard to believe, and so, for most of his life, Joe Moser just stopped talking. But every word he said was true. It is a prescription for war, this Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a stalemate. We continue to face a grave situation in Iran. The we shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender. Hi, I'm Aaron McLean, and today we are delighted to welcome Tom Clavin, journalist, author of numerous books, most recently, Lightning Down, a World War II story of survival. Tom, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you. Maybe we could start. Um, so, so your most recent book um, is the story of a, of a P-38 pilot in World War II who's shot down over France um, and then... Um, has a harrowing time, to say the least, in captivity, yes. and we'll we'll get into all of that. But why don't you just tell us about yourself first, and you know, we'll we'll get to ultimately how you got interested in this story and Joe Moser. But you're you're a writer. You've been um, writing about subjects like this for for many years. Um, tell us how you got there. Well, I think the very first book that I did that was uh, military oriented was called Halsey's Typhoon. And that was a collaboration with my friend, Bob Drury. We've since done, uh, I think a total of seven books have been published. And our specialty as a team has been military history, uh, American uh, history. And I started to, I, before Bob and I began collaborating, I had done solo books. And even while Bob and I have been collaborating, I've done solo books. And I had the opportunity along the way to do a couple of others that were military related, one called Reckless, which is about a uh, some people think it's a it's a novel, but it's actually a true story of a horse who was a sergeant in the U.S. Marine Corps during the Korean War, and uh, actually was awarded a Bronze Star. And uh, so I I I have I wouldn't say that I made a deliberate decision I was going to pursue military topics. It's just that after having done one or two, I found myself being more aware of what topics are out there, and also sometimes just stumbling across things, which is actually. In the case of Lightning Down, I'd like to credit my great investigative skills, but I basically stumbled on them. And, and who was, was Joe Moser, and, and how'd you stumble on him? A book that Bob Drury and I did that came out a few years ago called uh, Lucky 666 was about a B-17 bomber crew in the Pacific in 1943. And I happened to be doing some, probably towards the end of the process, some last-minute research for that uh, on the internet. And I found, uh, just by chance, this uh, obituary popped up. This was in December 2015 of a man named Joe Moser. He had just died at uh, the age of 94, and his 
his obituary was published in a, in a weekly in uh, the state of Washington, his, his community, Ferndale, Bellingham area. And uh, I glanced at it as I am, you know, I do, I can't help reading things. And what jumped out at me was a line that he had been survived being incarcerated in Buchenwald. And that was certainly unexpected. I mean, I was not aware, uh, as I think is true of most people, that were there Americans in, in, in Buchenwald? We thought that would be for gypsies and Jews and Russians and all the other people that the Nazis said were undesirable and they wanted them to get rid of them. So I began to do some research into that. I managed to contact the Moser family. I managed to do a little more research into it and discovered that it was not just an isolated case, that Joe was uh, one of 168 Allied pilots who were sent to Buchenwald and uh, they were supposed to just disappear. But there was, I think I found that there was a really, uh, to me, fascinating story of survival. It took me since that was December 2015, and the book was published in November 2021, uh, that's just under six years, and that was the, uh, the the amount of time it took to do the research. And huh. I I did have to do a couple of the projects in the interim, but I kept coming back to, to this book. It was, it was called Lightning Down right from the beginning. I, I can't explain why, other than the obvious fact that it's about a P-38 Lightning that crashes, and Joe's experience from that point on. So this the story of Joe Moser. It's you know it's it's on the one hand it's you know this extraordinary exceptional harrowing tale. On the other hand, you know it's kind of an ordinary story. He's an ordinary kid from an ordinary American family. Tell us a little bit about the the Moser family and how they end up in America and how Joe grows up. You know, I'm I'm glad you asked that question for two reasons. One, to give some background on Joe Moser, and two, I very deliberately uh, and I think one of the things that attracted me so much to Joe Moser is that. He is, in many ways, representative of the ordinary young American male who, by the thousands, joined the Army and Navy and other military after, after Pearl Harbor. And yet his, his story took such a bizarre turn. I think it's a more effective story because he was not terribly unique. But in Joe Moser's case, his father had come over from Switzerland, immigrated and uh, to Northwest Washington State, where apparently there was a, a number of other uh, Swiss immigrants, so he wasn't, he felt somewhat comfortable there. And uh, he began, uh, got work on a farm, and uh, he, he, he met Joe Moser's mother at a dance, uh, a barn dance, and they got married rather quickly. And uh, in fact, three months after they got married, Joe was born, and Joe always made the comment that one of the reasons why he was a bit of a short guy is that he only had a three-month gestation period. So, so uh, Joe was was had originally had three sisters and a three younger sisters and a younger brother. One of his sisters died as as a, as a child. Joe's father died when I think he was eleven or twelve. So he basically became the head of the family, and and he and his mother, widowed mother, ran the farm. And Joe, for no discernible reason became fascinated by airplanes he'd be out in the field and there'd be airplanes flying overhead and uh, he just you know had this idle dream he said boy i'd like to be flying one of those airplanes someday although more realistically thinking i'm never going to leave this farm this is my this is my life but then came pearl harbor and he joined the army and he managed to fulfill that dream by becoming an army air corps pilot and uh, a lot of training was involved. And it was finally in the spring of 1944 that his squadron was sent over overseas. They were first based in England. And then after some time after D-Day, they were able to move their base to uh, unoccupied France. And uh, I, I, 
Joe was on his 44th mission, and I should point out he was only 22 years old uh, when he was shot down. And uh, just going back to something I was saying before, when I thought of Joe's story and, and how best to tell it, I kept thinking of the World War II movies of the 1940s, where so often they were, you had like regular guys, <laughs> you know, some of them were very cliched. Okay, here's the Jewish guy from Brooklyn, right. here's the Italian guy, here's whatever. And, uh, and so Joe's training period and everything leading up to when he finally gets to go overseas and fight the enemy, to me was reminiscent of those World War II movies where they show somebody during basic training and training camp and the tough drill sergeant and all this kind of stuff. I saw a parallel between, so Joe's story I think was very typical of the young American soldier in, in World War II. It's just that his, his story couldn't have been more atypical. Yeah, that, the, you know, those cliches are cliches because they're rooted in, in reality. I remember actually reading um, when Spielberg did uh, Saving Private Ryan. Yes. He put a lot of thought and effort into recruiting actors who looked more ethnic um, than Americans do, uh, because that's how the troops would have looked. They would have been more, you know, obviously related to their sort of European sources of origin of, of their families right. um, than America in the, you know, 90s or, or 21st century. Well, certainly uh, in Joe Moses' case, he, like many of the flyers he flew with and and many who were in the military, they they were the children of immigrants, you right. know, they are the most grandchildren, you know, a lot of the, the big immigration waves that came over in the 1880s and, and 1890s, this, these were their children. So he, he grows up fascinated by airplanes, and that's, you know, for anyone who has little kids, not, not a totally uncommon thing. And then he gets right. fascinated by the P-38 Lightning. What, what was the P-38 Lightning? Tell us a bit about this plane that, that Joe falls in love with. Well, that was a unique plane. It was made by the Lockheed Corporation. And it was uh, one of the special things about it was that first of all it had a twin booms and the Germans uh, were, when they first saw them they thought they called them the plane with two pilots uh, they and they thought it was a light bomber uh, because it was bigger than look it looked bigger than the normal fighter plane yet and the P thirty eight P thirty eight was sometimes used as a bomber bomber more often though as a as a fighter plane as a, I mean Joe's early certainly before D Day uh, were mostly. Uh, providing escorts to the uh, B-17s, the Flying Fortresses, on their missions. And after D-Day, uh, more, more often the, the P-38s were being unleashed as, as fighter planes and hunters, you know, go find, uh, if you could find a, uh, some railroad cars, if you could find a artillery uh, group, then go attack it. And that's, uh, that was the mission that Joe was basically on. It was, it was, a, it was kind of like a fighter-bomber mission that when Joe was shot down. Yeah, well, let's let's talk about that. So it's it's August of 1944. So you know, Normandy is a few months, or D-Day rather, is a few months prior. We've had the Battle of Normandy, which is now transitioning into this breakout period, and the you know the armies racing or about to race through France uh, and liberate Paris. So it's I guess the day in question is August the 13th, 1944. What happens to to Joe on August the 13th? Well, Joe is is. Uh, uh... The flight leader. He's one of four planes that are, that are working together, and uh, he saw that there were what looked to be some a collection of trucks uh, that he assumed were either German trucks or helping the German uh, uh, operation somewhere. So uh, he went in to uh, to attack them, and he realized too late that it was kind of a trap that these were just decoy trucks, and he uh, was hit by anti-aircraft fire, uh, probably a combination of machine gun fire. And his plane went down, and it didn't just go down. Joe's plane caught fire, and one of the 
drawbacks to the P38 Lightning is it was difficult to bail out from. And one of the problems is that you could bail out of the cockpit and, and you're swept back to where the twin booms are and can get stuck on the, tw- on the, 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 the connection between the twin booms. So what he basically did, I mean, he was hoping, he tried, he was hoping that he could last long enough to get back to the Allied lines, but his plane was burning up too rapidly. So uh, he basically turned the plane upside down and allowed himself to fall. He got it, his boot was stuck for a while in the cockpit, but he managed to fall out. His plane crashed and exploded. He landed in a farm field and uh, there were a bunch of French farmers there who tried to help him escape into a wooded area, but the Germans were there pretty quickly. He was captured. And he was first brought to be interrogated in a nearby town. He was next brought to outside of France. And that's where he first discovered that there were other pilots, other allied pilots captured in this prison. Uh, You know, why weren't they all in a POW camp? And then uh, the next morning when they were put a thousand, a couple of thousand of people were put on this train that was leaving Paris and heading east toward Germany. That's when they assumed, okay, and it was a terrible nightmarish trip. I won't go into a, a lot of the disgusting details, but you had, you know, thousands of people, a couple of thousand people packed into these cattle cars and, and one like five gallon bucket of water to share between them. And they were on they, five days and five nights, I believe it took. But they assumed that when they arrived and the cattle car doors were, were pulled open, that they were going to be at a POW camp. And instead, when these doors were pulled open and they saw it, looked out and there were these Nazi guards and German shepherds and these skeletal like figures staring out at them from behind the fence, that it dawned on a few of them, uh, not all of them, that they were in a concentration camp, and it turned out to be. So, so what happened here? Um, you know, what what did you discover in your research that that led to this situation? You know, Joe is um, you know not a member of any of the sort of typical classes of undesirables that the Nazis would have sent to these concentration camps. Um, what what what's going on? Well, it was kind of bad timing, I guess. The the in in. In the summer of 1944, after D-Day had been successful and the Germans were in retreat, you know, after the first few weeks, the Allied forces started to make some real progress and get some real traction on the ground. And uh, the Germans were becoming increasingly desperate. They And they wanted to get a little more control over the occupied French population, which, of course, as much as it could, was turning on them. So one of the edicts that came out down from Berlin was that if, if a pilot was a downed pilot was helped in any way by the French resistance or even just French civilians. They were considered what were called terror fliegers or terror pilots. And it was kind of like an arbitrary designation, but it was, it was really a way to strike fear into the hearts of the French citizens who might think about helping these pilots. And, but what it also meant is that the, according to the Germans, these downed pilots did not have the rights of the Geneva convention. They did not have the same protections that, that their own pilots had if they were downed behind allied lines. So these 168 pilots uh, that were on this train with uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of others uh, that left Paris, the idea was send them to Buchenwald, where it was hoped very quickly they would, uh, they would die. And in Buchenwald is one of the more notorious of the Nazi concentration camps. It didn't, uh, it didn't take very much to die. You had you know, guards who killed people. You had disease. You had uh, exposure to the elements, malnourishment, uh, starvation. So the thought was that these pilots would not last very long and they would conveniently disappear, basically. 
and uh, that didn't quite happen. Tell us about Buchenwald. Let's let's go back in time a bit before the war. Uh, you know, it's part of this network of, of of camps. You know, how did it start? What was its purpose? What was it intended? If I recall correctly, it started in 1937, in the mid-1930s. And I believe it became the largest, just size-wise, of the Nazi concentration camps. And, uh, you know, the whole concentration camp system was begun so that there was a place as more and more people were being rounded up. Uh, basically before uh, the war started in 1939, you had a place to put them. All the undesirables, uh, you know, the gypsies, the, the Jews, the Catholics, the communists, just about everybody uh, to the Germans uh, were, were undesirable. Then as the war began with the invasion of Poland in 19, uh, September 1930, it was also a place to put uh, captured uh, Polish soldiers, eventually Russian soldiers. It was just a place to send people that, uh, I mean, Technically, it was called a labor camp. Uh, so that differentiated it from something like Auschwitz. Auschwitz was a death camp. I mean, its main purpose was to kill people. But Buchenwald was a labor camp that, of course, you know, tens of thousands of people died in Buchenwald. But that was not the purpose of the camp. They, they, they worked many people to death. But the idea was that they, there was a purpose to these prisoners. They did serve some purpose for the, for, the, for the Nazis. Buchenwald also had the distinction of being one of the very last of the camps to be liberated in April 1945. And one of the most uh, you know, horrifying, uh, I, I point out in, in Lightning Down, that at the time of the liberation, uh, a few days afterward, Edward R. Murrow, who was probably the most distinguished journalist, certainly in America at that time, he toured the camp and, and there were, he was seeing things that he couldn't say in his radio broadcast because the, it'd be, first of all, many Americans back home did not even know that the concentration camp system existed uh, until they were liberated. And second of all, it was just not fit for public consumption. You, uh, you talk a bit about some of the leadership of the camp to include this sort of monstrous couple, uh, Carl Otto Koch, uh, I assume it's pronounced Koch, maybe it's different, yes. um, and his wife Ilsa. Tell us a bit about, uh, about them. Well, I, I, I've spent a little time describing them, not only because they are, uh, you know, fascinatingly evil people, but they were definitely a, sim a symptom of the concentration camp system where you, you, you almost like thrived on brutality and, and, and horrible acts. Koch was a, uh, he himself was a very uh, cruel man. He was a commandant of, of Buchenwald for several years. His wife, took that really to a whole other level. I mean, she was called the bitch of Buchenwald. She delighted in, uh, you know, if, if prisoners, anybody was caught looking at her. I mean, she'd get on horseback, scantily clad, let's put it that way. And uh, if prisoners looked at her, they were executed. She even, I mean, she was had a lampshade that was made of, of human skin. I won't get into too many details. They're in the book. But, but this couple was, I think, representative of, the absolute extremes of horror and dep uh, deprivations and that could happen at a concentration camp. Now, Carl Otto Koch became even too corrupt for the Nazi system. He was eventually arrested. Uh, his wife was eventually uh, arrested also, and they uh, spent the rest of the war behind bars for the most part. So they, they, their story is fascinating. There's a story about a sergeant in the book. There's other stories casualness of the brutality and the way that life was so cheap you know the line from Casablanca in Casablanca life is cheap in mm -hmm. a concentration camp life is cheap and it's uh it's really is a miracle that some of the some of the survived and it's a miracle that 
some of the pilots survived. So what's daily life like for Moser and his fellow pilots when they when they get to Buchenwald? It's a little bit, there are thousands of, of, uh, of prisoners at Buchenwald worked in the factories that were right next door to the uh, concentration camp. And when the pilots got to Buchenwald after a couple of days there, there's no place to put them. Everything was, was um, uh, there were no barracks to house them. They literally slept on the cold stone the plaza. And uh, they did this for weeks upon weeks, even as cold as it was exposed to the elements. Uh, the nights are getting colder into the autumn. But the Nazis came to, uh, the SS came to the pilots, who were by this point, their senior officer was a man named Colonel Philip Lamison, who was a New Zealand pilot. And he had basically taken charge. And uh, they came to him and said, you know, tomorrow your pilots will start working. And he refused. He said, we're officers. And we're, Geneva Convention says we can't work in a factory that's, that's building bombs and ammunition and guns to be used against our, our fellows. And this was one of several times where he was within seconds of being shot or, or otherwise killed or by, you know, torn apart by German shepherds. So they did not have to work in the factories. Uh, they did have to do some menial housekeeping jobs. But basically, <clears throat> daily life for them was just they, the, the only nourishment they had was some thin soup where the protein basically came from the maggots in the soup. There was very hard bread, almost un inedible. That was partly made of sawdust. Uh, there was pilfering going on. The few possessions that they had were, 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 were stolen. And like I say, exposed to the elements. So it wasn't very long. And Joe Moser was one of these whose weight was dropping rapidly, who was subjected to dysentery, diphtheria. At one point, Joe was uh, down to, I think it was 105 pounds. Now, admittedly, he wasn't a strapping six foot tall man to begin with, but still, if you're 105 pounds, you're not uh, going to survive. So this this Lamison, the Colonel Phil Lamison mm. from New Zealand, right? Tell it takes some spine to do what he did. Tell us about him and about the, the sort of the culture of, of this group of pilots who find themselves, you know, basically in hell. Well, he was a remarkable man, and he's a remarkable character in the book. He, um, I, I compare him in the book that you know many readers and certainly some of your listeners have seen the movie The Bridge on the River Kwai and is the Alec Guinness, Colonel Nicholson character. Colonel Limerson is very much life like him, but without the madness. He's he 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 tells his I mean in addition to leading by example, which includes defying the Nazis, having guns put to his head, have being threatened with German shepherds because there's a certain standard that he wants for his from the Nazis. But he's also tells them that the way that we're gonna have any chance of survival is that we have to work together. We have to make it seem like we're still a military unit. We're going to march together. We're going to eat together. We're going to support each other. We're going to help each other. If we're sick, we're going to help each other. If it's raining, if it's the weather's cold at night, we're going to try and share blankets. When they had to go to morning roll call, they marched as a unit. Uh, and they knew this was a way to keep their spirits up and also it helped their spirits. They knew this was aggravating the Nazi guards who you know, thrived on people being degraded and humiliated. And here these men every day were making it seem like you know, we're still a military unit and you're not going to break. So it's easy to imagine, you know, being a prisoner in this camp and, and losing hope, not not hard at all. But a, a, as as it goes, Moser and the pilots are, are are not there for the duration of the war. And there's an intervention from this Luftwaffe officer, Hans, at the risk of mispronouncing his name, Hans Troutloff. So what, what happens? I mean, how, how does how does Joe eventually get out of Buchenwald and, and what's the nature of this intervention? Well... You know, it was kind of inconvenient that they weren't dying. And not all the, all the pilots survived Buchenwald, but it was kind of inconvenient that they were surviving against the odds. And uh, so finally, the order came down from Berlin 
to the commandant at Buchenwald, execute them. This would be soon after a whole bunch of British SOE agents had been, been executed. So now it was the Allied pilots' turn, and it came down to within a few days of the execution. And basically, all that the Colonel Lamson had left was a, basically a Hail Mary pass. And he had a, a letter, a note written in German that was smuggled to a nearby Luftwaffe base. And it got into the hands of, again, it's, it's another miracle, it got into the hands of Hans Trotloff, who was a German ace pilot, a uh, hierarchy, somebody of real stature. He was not a, a fan of Hitler at all, but he was somebody who fought for his country. And he was uh, astonished that if, if the information is not, in this note was true, that, that all these Allied pilots were in Buchenwald, there was a terrible breach of a certain code of honor uh, that still existed among some pilots, you know, sort of like a leftover of the Baron von Richthofen, Red Baron code mm-hmm. of honor from the World War One. So he arranged to have a uh, inspection done, whatever the pretext was, uh, at Buchenwald, and um, he he was you know looked around, and one of the ironies is that th- at this point the, the, the Colonel Troutlock would have believed that if there were actually American pilots there, he'd be able to spot them right away. They couldn't possibly look like the other prisoners who were skeletons by this point with this haunted look on their faces. But by now, that's what the, the Allied pilots looked like. They were almost indistinguishable in their filthy a little bit of clothing they had from the from inmates who had been there as long or longer than they had been there. So he, was, he, was, he said, okay, I guess they're not here. And he was turning away when one of the pilots who spoke German uh, called out to him to say, come see us, come see us, we're over here. Now this man certainly risked his life because they had been told, don't make any noise, don't make any commotion. But And of course, they were trying to steer Troutloff, you know, sort of almost like drag him out of there. And he said, you can't do this to me. I'm a, I'm a you know, hero of Germany and I outrank all of you and you can't stop me. And he went over to and actually had a conversation uh, with several of these pilots, and he was appalled. This is not the way you treat fellow pilots. This is this is beyond any any kind of cruelty that you can inflict on other pilots. So when he could, he got word up to uh, back back to Berlin that uh, this was the situation, and you know, very soon before the pilots were to be executed, they were transferred to a POW camp. Now, I, I want to emphasize here that your listeners may think, okay, that's the end of the book. <laughs> it's, it's a happy ending. They, they live out the rest of the war in a concentration camp. But one of the things that I found most remarkable about Joe Moser's story is that Buchenwald was just one stop on his journey that included several times when he was near death. You know, it's a it's a remarkable story with Troutloff. He's sort of a complicated figure, isn't he? Unfortunately, his um, his intervention and in, in shock did not extend to the, uh, you know, the non-pilot prisoners. Correct. And I don't think he even considered, I mean, he was appalled by the condition of all the prisoners. Uh, you know, he, he had nothing, he thought the SS and the guards and the people who were in the concentration camps and the concentration camp system was despicable. In fact, uh, several months later in, in January, 1945, he uh, was devoted and basically exiled because he had was accused of being you know, plotting against Hitler. He just saw this terrible waste of, of, uh, of, of German lives. So, but he did not really, he did not have any ability and frankly, any desire really to help any of the prisoners. His focus was on the pilots who, you know, he, he saw, okay, if, if, if word gets out that we're treating allied pilots like this, uh, what's to stop the allies from treating our captured pilots like this? Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, so Moser shows up there, you know, it's, 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 it's sort of this interesting and horrifying final phase of the camps, right? I mean, mm. if you, if you sort of study it's Buchenwald or Dachau or any, any of these sort of camps that begin as, you know, places to stick political prisoners and sort of evolve over time into these awful, awful places, this last year is one of total chaos and of flooding and overcrowding. And, you know, most of the death and, and suffering is actually sort of concentrated here towards the end of the war just so happens to be when when Moser and his fellow pilots show up and and and, and then they leave and as you point out and it's not like you know it's 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 puppy dogs and, and roses after that where, where, where are they marched to what's what's next well uh there there is an interval where Joe Moser and the other pilots are at this uh, prisoner of war camp and uh their their situation is certainly much improved over being at Buchenwald and one of the advantages is uh, they have access with the Red Cross and what this does, uh, in addition to uh, the practical help of Red Cross packages arriving to supplement the limited food supply, is that because of the Red Cross getting word to the Americans, Joe Moser's mother finds out that he's alive. I mean, all she had gotten uh, a couple of days after he had gone, his plane had gone down is that he was missing action. And as you can imagine, every day after that, every week after, her assumption is that when she hears nothing else, that her son is dead. And... Of all things, it's on Thanksgiving that a telegram arrives from the War Department saying that he is alive and a prisoner. So remarkable. She had a lot to give thankful for that day. But yes, as you said, the concentration camp system is becoming very fragile because the Germans are losing the war. You have the Russians you know, marching westward. You have the Allies marching eastward and Germany's in the middle of being squeezed. And uh, some camps are just abandoned, but in some camps, and this is the case of the one that Joe Moser and the pilots are in, they're, they're, the gates are basically opened, and this is the last week in January, and they have to march to get these, they, they're getting, they want to get them to another camp. And it's one of the worst winters that Europe experienced in the 20th century, and here you have these thousands of men who are thrust out into the, the snow, and the cold, and the wind, and the ice, and the sleet, and everything else for days and nights as they're marching and marching and marching, and it became known as, as the death march uh, because there were approximately 1,500 men died along the way. Joe comes extremely close to dying also. And it's, again, another kind of a miracle that he doesn't. And, uh, but even when they, they, they make it to the other camp, it's still months before Joe's camp is liberated. It's one of the worst, one of the last camps to be liberated. And there's a, to me, I thought was a remarkable scene where Joe, who was again down to like 105 pounds because food is almost non-existent at these camps, especially with just German guards are starting starving by this point. They're stealing whatever food is left. Joe is sitting by the gate to the camp and all of a sudden it, it smashes open and an American tank comes in and that's how the camp is liberated. And you, you know, if you can possibly imagine, somebody in that position probably thinks that this is a dream. How many times has, has somebody like Joe dreamed of the camp being liberated, of seeing American troops again. And the day it happens, there's a surreal quality to it because you wonder, pinch myself, am I dreaming? Have I just died and gone to heaven? Yeah. No, that's really an American tank. The, these marches in the um, the prisoner of war camps, are these administered by the SS, like the concentration camps, or is, or is he back in the hands of the, as it were, the regular German army? Yeah, the Luftwaffe actually was the one that supervised. I mean, the, the SS supervised the concentration camps. The Luftwaffe was the ran the the the, the POW camps. And yes, when this march takes place through the snow and the ice for days on end, the guards are, are Luftwaffe guards, mm. and uh, uh, you know they their main duty. I mean, they were through these horrible conditions themselves. They were better clothed and fed, of course, but 
But still, uh, as, as each man fell, the, the, the Luftwaffe guard's job was to drag them off to the side of the road. Sometimes they, they were already dead, or sometimes a, a, a kind Luftwaffe guard would kill the, the fellow and would just let him lie there and definitely freeze to death. But yes, that, the Luftwaffe guards that were, were on, the, on this death march also. Yeah. And, and so tell us about Joe after the war. Well, Joe, uh, again, um, there, there is, a, I think, a remarkable aspect of his story that takes place after the war. He eventually, it's kind of an ordeal, but he eventually makes it back to, uh, to Ferndale, Washington. Uh, there's a scene where, I mean, all through the war, and his, especially his incarceration, uh, he has this dream of, that he's going to be back with his family. He's going to see his widowed mother again. He's going to see his siblings. And there's a scene where he gets off the train in, in uh, near uh, where he grew up in Washington, state of Washington, and, and his mother arrives to pick him up. And again, this is like this dreamlike aspect to it, that, that he, uh, he did actually see his mother again. And on the one hand, Joe has a somewhat typical post-war life. You know, the idea was get back into society, get on with it, find, get married, get a job, have kids, be involved in your community, you know, have a kind of normal life. But so for that reason, uh, Joe, like thousands and thousands and thousands of other World War II veterans, especially those who saw combat, did not talk about his experiences. But there was sort of like a double whammy for Joe in that when he, soon after he did get back, and a local, uh, I can't remember, it was a VFW or American Legion, invites him to talk about his experiences in the war. And he talks about being in Buchenwald, and he's not believed. I mean, he's, he's in, in fact, people are laughing at him or they're despising him because they think he's inventing this story to hmm. become be seen as some kind of hero. In fact, an Army officer at one point says to, to Joe Moser, when Joe talks about this, there were no Americans involved. Yeah. You're making C this stuff up. C candidly, it does sound, you know, like I, I just think if somebody told me that with no evidence or corroboration, that would be my knee-jerk reaction, too. Is this guy's making stuff up. <clears throat> yes, indeed. And and so, Joe, it, it was horrifying, the thought that people would think he was lying. And he also got very worried that, especially when he met the, the woman who became his wife, and then as his kids were born, he you know, was very afraid of the idea that they wouldn't believe him. The, the people who loved him the most would not believe him. So he made the decision that he would never, ever talk about it. Hmm. And that, had, that went on for year after year, decade after decade. I'd like to close with the telegram that Joe's mother received, uh, which, you, which you have an image of in the book. Um, yes. And it's just, you know, especially if you have kids, and I have, I have a couple of sons, you know, it's just, you know, reading this is kind of extraordinary. Um, the mother, Mary, receives, uh, uh, you know, a notification in August that her son is missing in action. And, you know, a very politely composed version of, you know, don't call us, we'll call you. Right. We, we don't know anything else. And then, you know, August passes, September passes, October passes, and you could just imagine, you know, what it's like to be this woman. And then I'll just, I'll just read it. Uh, Mrs. Mary P. Moser, 1274 Northwest Road, November 23rd. Report just received through the International Red Cross states that your son, First Lieutenant Joseph F. Moser, is a prisoner of war of the German government. Letter of information follows from Provo Marshal General Witzel, acting the Adjutant General. You just imagine, you know, holding that in your hands after those long months. I think that there's a couple of things to this that's, that's worth pointing out. And I'll do it briefly. Is that uh, let's remember in the case of Mary Moser, she lost her husband. And she lost a daughter as a child to, a, to, a, to an accident. And then she lost her son, you know, literally missing, missing in action. And as I mentioned before, as the days go on, 
uh, and the weeks go on, she has to be thinking the worst. And so I think when, when she got this telegram, she was not only deeply grateful, but it's like, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you that I didn't lose another, my son, I didn't lose another family member. I'm sure she thanked God because uh, uh, Joe Moser grew up in a, in a family that was uh, of the Catholic faith and, and practiced it uh, in, in, you know, every day. So I think I, it's hard to imagine what it must be like and I know it's happened to thousands of families since World War II, where they have their sons and daughters go off to war and, 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 find, and hear that they're missing. I mean, it's one thing if you find out that you get a telegram that says they passed away. There's a, there's a certain maybe closure to that. But missing, that could go on forever. I mean, there's still people who fought in World War II and, and Korea, for example, and Vietnam. Their remains were never found. Their, their stories were never brought to a conclusion. Uh, so at least in her case, to find out her son was alive, prisoner of war is not nothing to be happy about, but there's a chance that she'll see him again, and she eventually does. Tom Clavin, author of Lightning Down. This is a fascinating story. Thank you so much for joining us and, and telling it. Thank you very much. I'm glad that you, I was here. This is a Nebulous Media production. Find us wherever you get your podcasts.